0: If peeing your pants is cool, consider me Miles Davis. Oh! That was the grossest thing I've ever heard in my life! (laughs) Let's go!
1: Club, a bi-weekly podcast in which we decide upon a theme, recommend records that fit that theme, and then meet back up to share our thoughts.
2: I'm Joey Albin. I'm Darvel
1: Hurlbutt. And I'm James Doyle.
2: So this episode, we're talking about Miles Davis's uh, 33rd album, Kind of Blue. Uh, As a reminder to the listener, the theme for this was... Uh, James's theme cycle, which were disruptive albums, I think you called it, albums that disrupted how you listen to music and kind of permanently changed how you approach listening to music or had, uh, had a major impact some way. Was that pretty much how we're, what, what the theme was? I, it's as good of a description as any. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So uh, this is kind of blue. It's the best-selling jazz album of all time I read. It was recorded in the spring of 1959, released in August of the same year. So this is what he they call the his first great sextet, or even just the great sextet. When we're talking about this album, there's all sorts of mythology and kind of vaulted language. So this is John Coltrane on tenor sax, Cannonball Adderley on alto sax, Bill Evans on piano, Paul Chambers on bass, Jimmy Cobb on drums, and Miles Davis on trumpet. Uh, all of these people were kind of the superstars of jazz at the time, went on to continue being superstars or even achieve even higher superstardom in, in you know Coltrane's case. Uh, also features Wynton Kelly on piano on one track who was actually Miles Davis's old piano player. Is it old or new? I don't know James can correct me on that.
1: I think he replaced Bill, but okay. I'm not yeah, sure.
2: Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think you're right. So this was the follow-up to the album Milestones, which had a lot of the same people. It was his first album with Bill Evans, uh, where he kind of first experimented with some of this stuff. Some interesting things is base- basically they just showed up for this session, they had booked nine hours of studio time. That's this whole album was done in nine hours of recording. It's four reels of tape. And he basically just said, Here, here's the charts. And the charts were basically just lists of modes that they're gonna be playing in. There wasn't like a you know full sheet music or anything. Uh, the only complete take, so in meaning, you know, push record, play the whole song. The only complete takes used were the ones that we're listening to on the album. With the exception of flamenco sketches, there was one other complete take, which the uh, the version we're listening to includes that. Uh, other than that, it was all kind of fragments that got put on the tape, and you can go listen to a lot of that stuff in various box sets and everything but i thought it's kind of interesting the only there's a lot of mythology about like oh you know they went in sat down just recorded the whole album start to finish and it was perfect like not really but the only stuff that they did go do start to finish it's what we're listening to so yeah we there's some other kind of album fact stuff but i'm gonna stop there and just kind of check in and see uh, what your experiences with this album are. First impressions, if you if you remember them, if it was a long time ago, or you know, just what what's your initial takes on this album?
1: So, uh, just quick correction: Kelly was Miles Davis's regular pianist at the time of okay. this album, but uh, Davis planned the album with Bill Evans in mind, so only allowed Kelly to play on that one track. Right. So I, I don't know. Uh, we might just edit that little bit out. of uh, Okay. <laughs> entirely. Thank you, Wikipedia. My background is, uh, you know, my undergrad is in music performance. And I went to a school that is pretty renowned for its jazz program. And I was not a jazz musician when I went there. And I never participated in the jazz program during my time there. So I was always a uh, jazz adjacent and kind of like, would pick stuff up from the people in that program. When I was first trying to get into jazz, this album was uh, recommended to me along with uh, Dave Brubeck's Time Out, which is a kind of a strange combination to put together. This 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 record was a, pretty much my gateway into jazz. I think it's the same way for most people that aren't aware of jazz. You know, four of the tracks on this album are standards that appear in the real book. So kids that are learning their tunes for the first time that way are learning this year. A lot of the things that were done on this album are still kind of like the blueprint for how things are. I don't think I can say anything about this record that hasn't been said better by people that are more knowledgeable than me. Other than to say that I I think it's a masterpiece. I owned it in multiple different iterations over the years in my collection. I've listened to it hundreds of times. Darvul?
0: So for me, I never listened to this album before. You picked it. And I also have never really listened to jazz. I was in jazz band in high school and stuff playing the saxophone with James, fun fact. (laughs) And uh, I really only like listened to the music as we were playing it. There was a tiny little bit where I was like, oh, I'm going to get super into this. And my uncle is, I think he still is a saxophone player for the army band, uh, just super into saxophone. So he made me I feel a little bad because he probably put hours and hours like compiling. I think there were like six mix CDs, a whole binder full of charts and things that were just like, here you go. And I, you know, probably spent an hour with them and that was it. <laughs> I don't know. So listening to this, it's funny when I first put it on and Brittany came in and was like, are you listening to jazz? I was like, yeah, it's for the podcast. She's like, oh, okay. And it's so easy to listen to especially a lot of the times i'm listening to this music i'm working and it's just so easy to be background music but i still i I, from the beginning i feel like an imposter i'm like i shouldn't be if someone were to like walk in like Brittany did and see me listening to jazz like i'm not this i'm not as cool as this makes me look kind of thing (laughs) (laughs) it's like oh listen to jazz huh it's like no it's it's just there i enjoy it but I currently would not put more jazz on in the future, but maybe that'll change as we talk about it. I I thought you were going to go a different way with that. Like, when Brittany walked in, you were like
1: a teenager with drugs, like, with her parents. <laughs> like, like, this isn't my jazz, I swear. Like, it's,
0: I'm holding it for a friend. <laughs> well, and that's what, I mean, Brittany, it was a very, like, why are you listening to jazz? But... I mean, I've always kind of had that feel that like, ooh, jazz is cool. You got to get it. You know, you got to, you don't get it unless you get it. You got to be in the cool club to get it. And uh, I don't feel like I'm in that cool club. It's just like, oh,
2: it's nice. You know, it's, it's funny you, you said some of that stuff because that's actually really relevant to like my meeting this album. So I first heard this album in ninth grade or maybe 10th grade. I don't remember. I heard it on, it was whatever came before Pandora like an internet radio thing, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down type, type situation, maybe like real music or something. I I don't remember. At the time, I thought I liked jazz because I listened to swing. Cause I, that was like, if you're like from a small town and don't have any, don't know anyone who likes jazz, like the only real exposure to jazz is swing, which is, you know, like purists would say, well, that's, that's jazz adjacent or, you know, whatever. So I liked swing and I thought I liked jazz and I wanted to like jazz. And like, I was basically digesting a steady diet of guitar magazines who were, you know, at the time they're talking about all these jazz musicians. And so I was like, okay, these are who I need to listen to if I'm going to listen, if I'm going to like jazz. And so I'd go on the computer and I'd listen to Charlie Parker, or I'd listen to, even Coltrane, like some of the Hallmark stuff or whatever. And I'd be like, I don't dislike this, but I don't really get it. Like, I don't know what my ear doesn't know what I'm, it doesn't have anything to latch on to. My brain doesn't really understand it. I I can recognize the immense talent this takes, but I don't, I'm not loving this and I don't really understand it. And so then I remember hearing this album in computer class or whatever, and being like, I like this. And it was the song So What from this album, which is probably the most catchy song on the album. And I was like, this, this is good. This is like the first non-swing jazz that I really enjoy and kind of like think is catchy. Later that week, I remember my mom, I took, my mom had took me to Walmart and I bought the album at Walmart. They happened to have it there if there's going to be one album at a small town jazz album at a small town Walmart, it's probably (laughs) this one. And from then on, I, I just like, just loved it. Like, I, I mean, I, there was like a solid two years where I would listen to this album, like every single night going to sleep. Wow. Me and my friends were just like all listening to this album all the time.
0: Did you get your friends into listening to it or did they just happen to?
2: They're kind of in a similar position as me. where it's like, we all like jazz, but we don't really like jazz like <laughs> like we don't really know anything about it or know what to listen to or have access to jazz recordings but you know like when you're in high school and you're and you're like make liking something a little bit it feels like a part of your personality so i think there's a little bit like that because like we're in band and we're cool musicians but also like full of crap because like We didn't actually have any of these CDs and didn't, and if we did, we wouldn't have understood what we were listening to. So, this album was kind of like, for me, like a Rosetta Stone type thing of like, okay, this kind of oriented my ear to something beyond swing music and kind of helped put some things in order that helped, I think paved the way to, like, understanding and enjoying some other forms of jazz, which is weird because, like, in the progression of jazz, this came after bebop, which was a lot of the stuff that I didn't understand. So in a weird way, like, this kind of unlocked something that came before it. So that was my, and I still listen to this album a lot, not as much as in high school, of course, but at one point I could probably like sing along to every solo on this whole album, <laughs> you know, like, like not the piano solos, but all the, all the horn solos, I could kind of do annoying mouth noises too, for like the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. So just a hugely influential album. And, and I think what's good about this album, like you said, Darvill, like Frank Zappa called this album a a really great living room album that like. It sold. I think it's only sold five million copies, even though it's the best-selling jazz album ever. I'm sure a lot of them are just people who are like, "This is nice. I like having this on when there's people over having a cocktail." Like, and then in addition to all the people, you know, big jazz heads who really love it and everything, it's a super accessible album. Like, I remember listening to some like Coltrane live stuff in the car one time, and my dad was like, "Do you like this?" And I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, this is really cool," and he's like. Doesn't sound very good because it was just, you know, he's just like squawking and honking and going all over the place. There's there's nothing on this album. Everything sounds great. Like there's very little I think that's like disagreeable. Like I think it is very easy to just have it on or really dig into it, which I I think is is nice.
1: Well, and and a comment on that is I, I think it's important. I know our, our music theory episodes are divisive. They are loved by some and hated by others, but <laughs> I, I don't think there's any way to talk about this record without getting a little bit into that yeah. side of things. So I, I think one of the the reasons this album has such a staying power is underneath uh, the bones of the record are very simple. The chord progressions and all those things, even though they're altered, even though they're sevenths or sevenths add four or whatever, they're they're still... Pretty normal
2: chord progressions, yeah, and just like a minor scale, basically,
1: right. And and they're things that that sound familiar enough to what you're used to listening to, as opposed to another really popular jazz album, is something like Giant Steps, which purposefully makes you mad as it goes on, (laughs) right? Yeah,
2: breaks all, breaks a lot of rules,
1: right. I think it's a testament to just how ingenious this record is that it can be a living room album for somebody who is a complete jazz novice or like you said, be broken down to the level that it's broken down to because of all the things that are happening above the changes.
2: Yeah. So I, I, for the listener, I did want to do like, I was, I'm going to, this is going to be like a two minute crash course in like, what makes this not this album. So groundbreaking from a musical standpoint, this you can go get, uh, bathroom break if if anyone doesn't really want (laughs) to listen to this part so kind of like the central concept of jazz is that if you're playing an instrument a big part of jazz is improvising and soloing and so the way you construct a solo is whatever chords are happening underneath you that the piano guitar you know whatever chords are happening those kind of give you your vocabulary for your solo. So if you're playing a a C, if there's a C major chord underneath, you can play C major stuff, you know, with a C major scale. And that can be as complex as you want. At the time this album was coming out, the main form of serious jazz was bop or hard bop, which took this concept to an extreme, where there's a chord change like every, every beat or every two beats. The chords are super complicated. They're also very, very, you know, layers of substitution where it's like we're going to substitute this chord for this chord and this chord for that chord and all this. And if you're soloing, you're expected to know what to play over any of that in any given moment and then connect it all together. And every single person on this album was coming from that world. They had been cutting their teeth on this for a long time and could do that. And so like Charlie Parker is the king of this for anyone who wants to go listen. And what Miles Davis basically said was, this is kind of boring because he felt like I cracked the code. Like I know what I'm supposed to play over that. So where's the creativity? Because it's just kind of like paint by numbers at that point for him, which is very funny because that's an extremely difficult level to get to for anyone, but that's kind of where he was. And so he was like, what if we did the opposite? What if instead of a chord every beat and, you know, super complicated options for over that chord, what if we had two chords for the whole song? And over that chord, you have kind of one scale and and that's it. And you can play whatever you want and make up whatever you want within this extremely broad static uh, field. And so specifically for this, this is what's called modal jazz. So a mode is basically, you can think of it as a kind of scale, like a major scale is, is a, a mode. There's a whole, there's a, all different kinds of modes, which is a sequence of notes, just like a scale. And so for this album, he'd literally give the horn players a chart that said, okay, um, you're going to play D Dorian mode as long as you want. Uh, and then after that, you're going to switch to E flat Dorian. And then you're going to switch back to D. And then it's going to be someone else's turn. And kind of this like jam session environment. But everyone was free to play around with the bass player, the piano player. You know, Everyone's just kind of feeling out this this space no one had done that before when this album came out like james said everyone was now doing this like that that became like a part of jazz from then on in addition to all the the stuff that was already happening so like all of a sudden added this whole arsenal of what you could do in a jazz song that didn't exist before anyways that's that's the theory crash course.
0: Yeah, I think that I think that was really well said. I think you like nailed it, man. I did read the Wikipedia page which you recommended, Joey, mm-hmm. and that was interesting getting into that element of stuff.
2: Shout out to the authors of the Wikipedia page for this album cuz I think it's pretty good. <laughs> so the first first track is so what? Maybe the most well-known song from this album, certainly the most kind of singable song starts out with a really famous bass lick that every jazz bass player needs to know. The first solo of the album is the trumpet solo that, I mean, every baby jazz trumpet player learns that solo.
0: This is, this is going to be an interesting one for me, um, the, the whole album. But I've said that before for other albums, too. I guess it's kind of along the same lines of even uh, the Lorna Shore. They all kind of fall into the same bucket for me. My commentary on each one is mm-hmm. going to be similar.
2: No, and same, same here.
0: I mean, it's interesting. So James sent me the charts for most of the songs, and uh, it threw me off Where I was looking at these. I was especially like Freddy Freelance, Freeloader. I'm like, how is this? A chart, like thinking back to <laughs> the, the jazz music I played in jazz band and stuff. is like if we were looking at this, I'd be like, well, is this for like a seventh grader? What, what are we doing here?
2: What, what, what do I do?
0: And so then going and reading on Wikipedia, better understanding that. But that does, I mean, so what is a two-page chart with a lot yeah. more kind of interesting, well, it looks more complicated just because there's lots of flats and stuff.
2: You're absolutely right, Darrell. It's kind of hard... Regardless of one's experience with this album, to talk about like, there's not like verses and choruses that we can be like, oh, I love when he said blah, 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 short yeah. of going, I love when they go, <laughs> and that is not annoying, that's not gonna be pleasant for our listeners. Yeah, it's kind of hard to talk about. I like this part in the song or, you know, however you want to say it. So, it, no, I completely agree with that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think that uh, something about this track that's really important is one of the things when I was first learning jazz that always just annoyed the stunt out of me was my teachers. i be like, always say, you to learn jazz, you got to listen. You can't just like read it. You, you got to listen. And I'd be like, that's so stupid because with normal songs, I can just play what's on the page and I hear what they sound like. And that's the way it is. (laughs) But this uh, track does such a great job of like really showcasing vocabulary of, of trading um, ideas back and forth, especially in the rhythm section of, of complimenting without covering up. And I, I think really defines that style. If you were a person that came in, you, you learned the track exactly as it sounded on the record and you were just doing the things that Jimmy Cobb was doing or just the things that Paul Chambers were doing. You, you could play this song like sitting in and no one would say anything. Yeah. This is a great way to kind of learn that, that vocabulary.
2: There's no way to definitive, definitively say this is the first time anyone ever did blah, blah, blah. Cause like some of these guys hinted at it at previous, previous Miles Davis albums or whatever, but for all intents and purposes this album was like the first cohesive statement of this new genre and it's very to me interesting they're like oh we just we we wrote the textbook on it the first time like like if you were wanting to say if if you want to get your buddies together and start a modal uh cool jazz combo you sh- this is what you're supposed to sound like like it's not like oh they they started and then these you know, other people refined it as the genre grew. It's like, no, this, this is it. This is what it is. So I should also say, I didn't say this before about the album. Bill Evans is like my favorite jazz musician ever. I think I'll listen to anything he's ever done. I think he's like maybe one of the greatest musicians ever. I think he plays beautiful things on the piano. And he's, he's so, he wrote this album, basically. Miles Davis credits himself with some things that bill evans really wrote and so i it's kind of weird that you know this is miles davis's 33rd album it's like well it's really bill Evans's like album not miles davis but whatever um an interesting thing also since we're talking about the start of the album the first three tracks of this album were recorded on a different tape device did y'all read this on wikipedia Mm-mm. so I read, this may have been a JSTOR article I was reading. It was recorded on a different tape device. And then when they pressed the master it, they realized this tape machine was running a hair slow. So when they pressed it, the first three tracks on the album, the the side A of the album is like 16 cents sharp. Hmm. So like, if you were going to play along with this album, you would need to tune your instrument to it. And so then in the nineties, when they're doing like reissues. And then later when they did like a 50th anniversary reissue, they fixed it. They pitched it down to be, or yeah, pitched it down to be, to match the, the B side, like concert pitch. And all the jazz purists got really mad and were like, no, it is, it is a vital part of enjoying this album to enjoy it slightly sharp, you know? And which is silly. Like they didn't record it slightly sharp, you know? Anyways, I thought that was kind of a funny example of jazz snobbery <laughs> it's it also it's not like oh it has a certain tonal quality when it's 16 cents sharp or whatever it it sounds the same it's fine one thing i remember i'm going to say this cuz i'm sure he's not listening to this my freshman year roommate in college was uh a music business major which at belmont it's like a business degree but about the music industry and it's not a music degree but a lot of People who like music, of course, get that degree. And I found out he this roommate of mine wa attempted to be a music major and didn't make it in. He he's a guitar player. And so he did music business. And he was like a super big time jam band guy. In fact, like he didn't go to class for like four weeks because he followed String Cheese incident around for that time instead of going to his classes which is great for me because then I got the dorm to myself, (laughs) but I found out this was his audition song and it, he played it and it was not good. (laughs) It was like a very jammy version, which I found out like string cheese or one of the bands he liked, this was part of their set. And so he was doing that version of this song, which if, I can only imagine was a surefire way to annoy whatever professor was listening to his audition.
0: <laughs> now, when you say jammy, because I would have, I would have called this jammy where it's like, you're just hanging out jamming. But is that different?
2: Yeah, sorry. I, I mean, like, more like the jam band genre. So, like, uh, Grateful Dead, Fish,
0: um, oh, okay. that right.
2: kind of, like. Noodly stuff that while they may be playing this song are taking a very different tack with it. Got it. Yeah. So Paul Chambers is the bass player on this album and he, you know, this is a super prominent bass part. As James said, he kind of is like the prototypical jazz bass player. Like to this day, if you want to learn how to play upright bass jazz, the right way you copy Paul Chambers, like, he he he, it's just it he played with everyone a very tragic story he died when he was only 36 years old because he like many people in his circles was just every night just slamming liquor and heroin and gave himself all sorts of associated medical conditions and unfortunately died at a fairly young age for someone at literally like even at the time, was considered the best jazz bass player. Interestingly, the bass player who worked with Bill Evans after this uh, was a guy named Scott LaFaro, who was kind of, everyone was like, oh, now this guy's the best bass player ever. He also died at the age of 27 in a car accident. So Bill Evans, you don't want to play bass for Bill Evans because you might die young, but Scott LaFaro played on... Maybe my second favorite jazz album, which is "Waltz for Debbie" by Bill Evans. Uh, Yeah, so very sad story about Paul Chambers. They called him Mister PC, which is also the name of a. There's a Coltrane song named after him. Uh, Okay, so next song is "Freddie Freeloader."
1: So I absolutely adore this track um, for a long time. I taught middle school jazz and this was a song I would always use with my students. Like Darvel said, if you look at the actual, like the uh, fake book for it, it's, it's only a page it's four chords and the head is super easy. It's in the key of B flat. So it's very easy to transpose um, to whatever instrument they're already doing. It's also very great. Cause you could just say, uh, unlike what they do in this album you you just go, Hey, play your B flat blue scale over anything that's happening and it sounds awesome (laughs) in terms of like my own jazz education this track was immensely helpful and uh i still think going forward that this is probably one of the best things for anyone who wants to learn jazz
0: or or teach jazz to younger students to use when you guys like listen i mean because it's the core of this music is solos right Mm -hmm. like that's when you guys listen to a solo like what I mean, I don't think I have any solos in any of these songs or albums that I'm like, oh man, this one, I love this one. Like, what when you're listening to a solo, like, what are you listening to? What do you feel like makes it a good one versus an okay one? Yeah, so Jerry Tashua, um, I went
1: and saw a clinic that he did. Um, supposed to be about two and a half or three years ago now, and he was talking about how uh, there there are two kind of uh, camps when like are two kind of schools of thought when you are teaching students how to solo the first time. And the first one's what they call like the lick based approach where it's like this person played this thing. It was awesome. So you're going to figure out what they played. You're going to transcribe it and you're going to play the same thing. And then you have that lick in your toolbox now, and you're going to be able to pull that out anytime you're playing something similar and play those licks or take those little bits apart and rearrange them in different ways to make new sentences for yourself. The other way of doing it is, uh, you can do where you teach the students what's actually happening musically. And you start to build that vocabulary slowly and you start to have them share their ideas. And uh, that's obviously the much harder route. And the other one sounds much more impressive in in the beginning. But the problem is, is that if you have students who have been taking that kind of method thing, a lot of their solos start to sound really samey where they're pulling a lot of the same licks from a lot of the same places because they're the flashy things that are either fit their instrument really well or it sounds cool to students of that age group but they you know you're not actually getting real ideas there the ideas that you're communicating in a jazz solo should basically be like to steal from another famous jazz vibraph- vibraphonist stephen harris it should be like a conversation when stephen harris plays live he always kind of like talks and kind of does it's like <laughs> and he can kind of hear it in his microphone like underneath his vibraphone as he's playing and i i saw a video one time where someone asked him they said it like are are you singing your ideas before you play them like what's happening and he says no I'm, I'm trying to map out the flow of the conversation he said if someone comes in and says like hey man what time is it and i respond man i love apples. That doesn't happen there. I have to come up with something that would be a response to, hey, what time is it? Well, it's 11 o'clock. And that's kind of putting those ideas together in the solos here. A really well-constructed solo always makes sense with what came before it and what's coming up after it.
2: Yeah, I think for me, like what makes a good solo, first of all, is context specific. So like in a lot of other jazz situations, not this album, one thing that really impresses me is like how creative can they get with like the notes they choose to play and how they fit with the chord that's happening underneath it. So like the example I used earlier where like, okay, there's a C major chord happening underneath it. So you play C major scale on top of it. That might sound really nice. It's not all that creative. It's fine though. That's, it's not bad, but like a really good jazz musician has either intellectually they know this or maybe they just know it by ear a whole list of things that like could possibly could possibly be played over a c major or you know a chord and some of it the further away you get starts to sound really weird or even bad a good musician can take all those weird and bad notes and fit them together in a way that still makes sense. So another jazz album, other jazz solos, that's something I'm really paying attention to is like, oh, that, they like kind of went for it and it worked. With this album, there's not a lot of that. There's not a lot of interesting substitutions, I don't think. So I'm not, that's not as much a factor. I think for this album specifically, the things that make me, really like a given solo especially is some of these solos are very, very catchy. Like you could almost like, if you took this solo out, like that could be its own little baby song on all on its own, because it's like a nice little melody like that he just made up while he was playing. It's not like, so like, uh, so what has an, um, the bass lick, there's a little bit of a melody, but, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but, so but a lot of these other songs there isn't like a a written melody to play. So like when they're soloing they're just making up little tunes the whole time. And when that when they you can tell sometimes even when they're playing it's like they discover, "Oh, that was kind of cool. I'm going to I'm going to play with that for a little bit and like maybe play it again, maybe play it again but a little faster or add some bit like you can almost hear them like discovering it. And I think that's what I like on this album is like, what melodies can they come up with? And then also kind of what James was saying, like Coltrane, especially on this album, has some really good like conversation type playing where like he'll play something and then play something that responds to it. Kind of like there's he almost sets up this little back and forth between the thing he's playing and then what's really cool is sometimes he'll be doing that, and you'll hear the piano player, you'll hear Bill Evans start catching a little bit of it too, and they've got this little dialectical situation happening, which is is very cool, so that's on this album that's what I'm listening to is like the flow, like James said, does the thing that happen how does it get how did we get there, and how do we get where we're going, and then like how catchy or creative the melody is cool
1: a, a couple of things to expand on a little bit too is the more you listen to jazz the more you'll be aware of of things like quotes a lot of times in solos where um you'll have a soloist take something from a melody of another song and kind of work it in um i think one of the most famous examples right now is uh april in paris count basie um uh, i'm trying to think what it is is it pop goes the weasel yeah he he works it in to the solo
2: bam, 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 bam. yeah
1: But but he doesn't finishes it. He doesn't yeah. finish the the phrase. But but like kind uh, of goes off after at the end. So that, that's one point. The other point is in, in talking about how the soloist knows how things sound. Uh, I think that's the same as like like any songwriter. The more and more you write, like if you take the most like basic person who's ever picked up an acoustic guitar and they learn three chords, they're like, I know. That if I play this this D and then I go to this G, that's money. Like, that's <laughs> that sounds good. Like, that's what everyone's like, oh, man. You know, so it, it's the same kind of thing here where it's like, okay, well, if someone's playing a B flat and I play that E natural, that's going to be like a really kind of sharp sound there. And then I can pivot up that'd be the natural place for me to go but it might be weird if i pulled it down a little bit but if i do that then where do i go from there kind of you start to negotiate those kind of things once you're at this level i think those like thought processes aren't even really happening you're literally speaking through your instrument at that point that's interesting
2: it's, it's cool because like this conversation we're having right now is like precisely what led to this album existing like i was saying bebop jazz the player is given an immense amount of information via here are all the chord changes that happen in this song they're very complex chords there's a bunch of them in addition to that you better have done your homework and know for any of these chords what you're supposed to play you have an immense amount of a very rich complex vocabulary being prescribed whereas with this it's like well you can play whatever you want over this very extremely broad prompt you, you know of just i'm going to play this chord and then you you figure the rest out you know like so you do have to kind of rewrite your own book of like what 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 makes a solo good what makes a solo enjoyable to play or to listen to it it's totally different rules that's interesting
0: that especially the comparison between Was it bebop? Is that what you keep calling it? Yeah. Forever ago, back in church stuff, I sang in like a little choir or a quartet. And uh, we just did like a few like special musical numbers at a special like little church meeting or something. And uh, the first song we did, it was just the four of us. And it was Silent Night. And so they were doing, you know, it wasn't like typical from a hymn book. So my part, I was just kind of like, you know, listening to them and finding a note that's not being hit kind of thing. We, like, practiced a few times, like, okay, cool. The second song we did, though, I was doing the same thing, but then they brought in this, like, super amazing piano player, and she was doing, like, all these crazy chords and all this stuff, and I, like, we didn't practice very much with her, and so, like, during the second verse specifically, like, I could not find a note, (laughs) like, just... And I think it was, like, the chords (laughs) were just... it was not good. And like afterwards the kind of the, the guy leading it was like he's like, Well, that was interesting. And I was like, Yeah, sorry, I really messed up that second verse. He's like, Yeah, you did. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, oh. <laughs> But yeah, it seems kinda similar there where with the Bebop, you know, you have to do your homework, you have to know that stuff where I felt like the first song we did it was like, "Ah, oh, I can kinda glide around here and find something that would be good. Well, it it's funny,
1: um, when we were living in Washington, I was playing in a big band, and I told the band leader ahead of time, like, you know, like, I'm not a jazz musician. I I need to know the charts ahead of time. And, and big bands different. You usually have, you know, a couple pages of charts, even if they're just the changes. But there's a a, be- a better form to follow because you can't be calling out that many instruments that are doing different things at different times. But it was it was a pretty big songbook. And uh, there were a couple people that, that would play in this uh, jazz jam that would happen like once a week at one of the local like bars i was like oh man you know yeah like i'd love to come sit in with you guys And i've been playing in this big band now for for a few months at this point and they're like oh yeah cool yeah you should totally come out and i was like i was like do you guys supposed to play standards like should i bring like a real book with me or anything like that and they were like if you need a book don't show up <laughs>
0: <laughs> and i was like
2: oh, okay i won't <laughs>
0: <laughs> thanks guys so did- did you not show up then is that no. like, at the end of it yeah no i i, I never went Man. i was i i was terrified um, yikes do you i mean i'm guessing james you've between the three of us probably dealt the most with like jazz musicians i mean again i always get the impression that jazz is like kind of exclusive in a way where it's like you got to you got to earn the right to be into jazz uh, does that kind of follow with your experience with jazz players and stuff, or is that not the case? It's easy to stereotype and say, yes,
1: but, but like most things, it's very dependent, just like, you know, metal shows are the most friendly thing. You know, if you go to a metal show, like everyone will pick you up and all that stuff. But like, we've all been to that show where someone pushed the limit, you know, and it did stuff. I have met a fair share of musicians in my time who are pretty elitist, who, think that if you haven't if you're 21 and you haven't memorized 100 tunes in all 12 keys like you're not going to be anything like you haven't put in the time the other side of that though I've met several people who are like very well established in the scene have their own like jazz orchestras or big bands or or quintets or whatever and they're super friendly they're super welcoming they want to get more people involved in the scene they understand that you know jazz is not burning up the charts anymore. <laughs> and the only way to reach people is to, to appeal to a younger audience. So it depends. They're, are gatekeepers just like with anything else. And I think set, sa- I think for a long time, there might've been more gatekeepers with jazz than with other genres. But I think that wall's starting to come down a little bit, even among the older generation, as time goes on.
2: I think also there's less gatekeeping because there's less, Like you said, jazz isn't popular. Like, what are we gatekeeping? (laughs) You know, like, like there's no one trying to break in. Uh, I think another thing that kind of makes jazz interesting in this, to answer your question about like, you know, how welcoming is it, is that setting aside people, like the music, in comparison to like many, many, many other styles of music that are commonly listened to, is very distinct. So let's say you're a really good you're You're a good rock guitar player you can if you're if you're playing some rock guitar, you can solo decently. If you sat in with a blues band, you could play a lot of the same stuff and maybe just alter it slightly and you'll sound okay. or you could sit in with a country band even and a lot of it you could play some of the same stuff like there's a lot of shared language musically between a lot of the genres that are popular right now, pop and rock and uh blues and country and even metal. I think jazz, it's very hard to fake, is what makes it really challenging. Like, If you're a really great rock guitar player, metal guitar player, that doesn't make you any better at playing jazz than anyone else. In fact, it might even make you worse because you'd start to play stuff that immediately sounds wrong. Hmm. And so I think... Setting aside, you know, like like James said, you know, you got to do your homework if you're going to hang with the jazz cats or whatever. Like, I think the issue is that, like, it honestly does take a little bit of homework just to even participate at all. Like, right. it's we're not as steeped in it. In like when you turn on the radio, very little of what you hear is going to have musical content that is jazz based. Uh, And here and there, you'll hear some stuff. If you're a kid who has got their first guitar and you're playing, you're learning your licks and you're playing, buying your guitar magazines and playing in the garage with your buddies, you will likely never encounter the kinds of playing you would want to learn to play to, to like play basic jazz stuff. And so I think, I think there's a little kind of built in gatekeeping not intentionally, but just in that it is a somewhat foreign and distinct sound. That makes sense. We'll, we'll go ahead and move on to Blue and Green. It's weird for me to say this is my least favorite song on the album because like, I love the, I love this album. I love all the songs on the album immensely. But I guess if I had to pick one, this might be it. It's it's gorgeous. It's a beautiful song. But I do tend to forget this song more than some of the other ones. It's not as memorable to me as as some of the other tracks. That that's surprising to me. <laughs> um No, yeah. I mean, it, and like I said, it's very weird to say that cuz I, I feel like I just need to follow it up by saying a million times, like, I love this song. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> it's a beautiful song that I love. But if I had to rank this, any of the tracks.
1: I, I, I think for me, I, and, and this might be uh, a uh, instrument bias here. Amazing brushwork on this track. Just absolutely stellar. Fits the song perfectly. Not overbearing. Still keeps it interesting the whole time. That combined with the fact that this is the first time that we get some actual like uh, we get some harmonies beyond what we've heard.
2: Yeah the the first the first two tracks are pretty much just seven chords and they're mostly the modes that are prescribed are Dorian and Mixolydian in terms of you know on the charts you know they they play various other things but that's kind of our main home base. Okay.
1: Yeah, but but this is the first time on the album when we just start getting, you know, like I think flat fives and we get like um an 11th chord and some of those like, you know, wrong notes that people associate with jazz that I think make the uh, the texture just more alluring than some of the other stuff that's come before.
2: Yeah. And, and should should clarify that uh or t- should add that Bill Evans, the piano player, was compared to all these guys by far the most like trained musician like in another life he could have been you know just as famous as being a classical orchestral composer as anyone else in the first half of the 20th century like the guy knew music forward and backwards in a much broader context than jazz
0: talking about the brushwork it was that was one of the things that stood out to me most in this track when i first listened And it was interesting just with music I've, you know, worked on, you know, playing with different synth sounds and things. There's like tape saturation or like just adding noise. Like I have one knob on one of them that's just like add noise or something like that. (laughs) That just gives it kind of like a, that, I mean, kind of brushwork sound, that static sound. Um, And also listening to uh, like chill lo-fi music. Mm -hmm. And uh, especially my kids listen to Zelda and chill like every night when they're going to sleep and uh, you know, they have a lot of that kind of just extra sound in there. And it was like, it's like, Oh, is that in here? Like, Oh no, it's the brushes. It was just interesting. Kind of like comparing it, the use of brushes to that, like to get that same effect and feel, um, which, you know, could also be very different, but that was interesting to me.
1: Well, and I think it's for any drummers listening. If you if you've never played with brushes, the first time you play with brushes, it is like the biggest mind warp moment ever, because all of your motions go from being you know vertical to lateral. It is so difficult to like be like okay, I'm going left and right with everything now instead of (laughs) up and down, and like, and and then when you add in the fact that you know the stuff on here where you're comping you typically have a a large circle and a small circle happening with your two different hands and you have to be aware of where one hand is like for certain beats to keep the time to keep that sound consistent and the other brush has to be out of the way it's doing what he does on this track is very difficult
2: <laughs> me and my buddies played in the band at church and on like the slow type hymn more hymn type songs uh, my friend who was a drummer would just do brush stuff. And I remember one time after church, my mom was like, hey, what is Daniel stirring up there? Because <laughs> he's just like moving his hand in a circle. <laughs> I was like, oh, I guess they don't like that. <laughs> uh, I'm glad we're talking about this because. I mean none of these guys are unsung heroes. Like everyone on this album is rightfully recognized as a legend, but I think it's easy to focus on the horn players and the, basically the pitched instrument players and like focus on their contributions when Jimmy Cobb's drumming on this is just so good. It's so tasteful, but not in a, I mean, like, tasteful in an exciting way sometimes, you know, he's not afraid to play out like, but he also knows when to kind of rein it in. It's just, it's so good. So one other thing that this album is notable for is it actually sounds acoustically sounds different than a lot of jazz albums at the time did. So if you go listen to even Miles Davis's album right before this, or certainly any, a bunch of his other albums before this, or any popular jazz album, they sound much more like the mics are closer to the instruments and you don't hear the room a lot. The engineer for this album came from like recording classical music. And so this album has like a big open, not reverb open, but more just like we're all in a big room together and there's some space and it can breathe. I don't know if this album would be as good if it sounded real tight and close mic'd. You know, I think like the big open feel really fits the the music a lot, especially when we're talking about drums. hmm Moving on to all blues. When I was preparing for this podcast, I learned something new about this album that I didn't know before. So this song is called All Blues. The one that's after is called Flamenco Sketches. Mm -hmm. The names are swapped. When Bill Evans wrote these two songs, originally this track four was called Flamenco Sketches and the next track was titled All Blues. And in fact, there's even a little note he wrote like for the this recording session where it's like, yeah, all blues. It's the one that's just these five scales and you can sit on it as long as you want. <laughs> and then Flamenco Sketches starts with this little piano thing. And then for whatever reason, Miles Davis was like, yeah, I don't like that. I think this song should be called Flamingo Sketches instead and switched them.
0: <laughs>
2: that's weird. Yeah, and then what's really funny is for the 50th anniversary of this album, they included Bill Evans' notes as like a little, "Hey, look, this is what Bill Evans this is what he wrote about these tracks." And they altered his notes to make the titles match what the a record had already done. So like they just pretended as if he described them opposite <laughs> to make the naming fit. Yeah. It was very hard for me to understand because I think flamenco sketches has some chord progressions I associate with flamenco music. But I guess that's kind of proof that like, you know, power of suggestion, maybe. I've listened to this album many, many hours and done lots of, read lots of stuff about it. I didn't ever know that before. So I thought that was kind of a, a weird fact about this, these two songs. I, yeah, that uh, kind of blows my mind a little bit. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So this is, I think, probably my favorite song currently. I just really like the do, 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 just it's fun. I do imagine I would get bored as a, you know, I'm a saxophone player and like imagining playing this song, just a lot of like, do, 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 do. just kind of like, <laughs> all right, I'll do my time. So I get my solo eventually, but like, I understand I got to be here for this, but, uh, I don't know. I I feel the same way about drums, too, especially, like, on this album. There's times where I'm like, I know there's doing things that I don't understand, like you mentioned with the brushwork, but overall, like, if I feel like I'm just, like, keeping time on the cymbal, but do you feel that way ever, James? you get bored playing music? I mean, just the stuff that you write. No. No. (laughs) No. That's right. I'll blame you for it, though, because you write your own parts on those, so...
1: (laughs) There there was there is one song that's the bane of my existence. Um when I was playing in that big band in Washington because there was never a time when it wasn't requested, and that was always twenty-five or six to four by Chicago. The <laughs> and it just forever and ever and ever today. you know, it just repeats over and over. Um and then you finally get to the part where it's like the halftime. You're like, yeah. And then it goes right back into the, the groove again.
0: But that's those are specific songs that like you just do that song a lot that is, gets overdone for you. Like in a song like this, you got nine, ten minutes, and like yeah, there's little things you can do to mix it up. But for the most part, it's pretty like not flashy, just simple. But I mean, are you is it are you able to stay engaged and interested in songs as you do that? Going back to to Joey's like. Or I, I think you said earlier, like being a bit of an imposter
1: is like I'm. I'm not a jazz musician, so when I do have a jazz gig, I am like deadlock focused <laughs> at all times on what everyone else is doing <laughs> to make sure that I am not the one screwing the track up. <laughs> and, and this is this is a great example of a song where it would be very easy to do that because it's the uh we're in six eight here. There's The transition from like the brush stuff in the beginning to the the uh, actual kind of swing, but it's that very open quarter note or dotted quarter. He likes to keep the whole time and it's so easy to push. It's so easy to pull if you're just like zoned out for a little bit. So you really have to engage in with like what the horn player is doing and then make sure that you're kind of sending back a little bit of compliment with their ideas to fit what's happening at the time. On that subject, I do want to say I've always thought this track in particular has the best ride cymbal sound out of anything on the entire record. And I always thought it was kind of an anomaly. Now, knowing that the first half was pitched up. Yeah. I'm wondering if that's just like, this is how the cymbal is supposed to sound.
2: Yeah, that's a good point.
1: But it is. It's like super full bodied while still being cutting really helps with with those like little punctuations and when he does the kind of like spangling stuff in between the dotted uh, dotted quarters.
2: I was actually just looking cause I wasn't sure. So like maybe the most famous, I guess outside of Dave Brubeck, like kind of mainstream jazz piano player compo- you know, composer is Vince Guaraldi who did all the, you know, Charlie Brown Christmas. I've always thought that the intro to this song is very similar to some of the sounds that Vince Guaraldi plays with. And so I looked up and Vince Guaraldi like broke into the mainstream a few years after this, but was playing, you know, cutting his teeth at the same time as this. So, you know, I don't know. I would assume Bill Evans influenced him because Bill Evans influenced everyone. I mean, he was such a distinct break from what jazz piano was at the, at the time um but yeah I I like the little piano intro here I think it's really fun still it's a bluesy song so it blows my mind that it wasn't originally titled all blues <laughs> one thing that this album is really good at and I think it we've hinted at this so far in this conversation like that this is a very listenable album you know like you don't have to love jazz to to tolerate this album and you might even enjoy this album even if you don't like jazz
1: I I do also think um, the fact that Darvel likes you said this track is like your favorite. Yeah, I I think something that might be worth exploring for you then is you might actually like to go back to bebop a little bit because (laughs) the solos Uh, on the back half of this track. Even though content wise, like in terms of pitch are not in the bebop element, the feel kind
0: of is. Where there's a lot of those like, da
1: da, bloodoo yeah.
0: bloodoo da da, and it's kind of like flailing, yeah. Now with that, though, I do think my favorite elements of the song are the like the core kind of melody and and tune of it, and so. But I was gonna talk about those uh, that solo, one of the saxophone solos. He's really, and again, in our school, jazz band was a joke, right? It was like sixth period. Show up if you feel like it. And, you know, even then, half the time we're not doing anything. And then, too, like, I don't know, when someone would be like, okay, cool, and do a solo. Like, I felt like we weren't trained for that at all. And so we're just very scared. Like, we only ever play what we're told to play. Like, uh, so you get a lot of, like, timid solos. Like, and I was the class clown. And so I would do more of the, and, but not have any idea what I'm doing just going for it and, you know, like dancing in my chair, being silly and stuff. But I was always surprised like how well it came out, like in my head at least. And uh, and, and James, I don't know how well you remember it. You might be sitting there like, oh, I remember those awful things you called solos. But <laughs> I don't know. I've always been curious if there was like, oh, wow, is there some like I've got a natural gift towards these jazz solos and I should spend more time on that stuff or if it's you know, you pick up an acoustic guitar and it's like, wow, this G chord to this D chord is awesome. You know, that's what I was experiencing where it's just like, oh, this note doesn't sound good, but if I change it, that one does. And everyone will just think it was an in- intentional. And I did feel a little bit validated. So my senior year, after you had already graduated, uh, started teaching jazz band because it was gone. And he was very like, we're going to be serious about jazz band now but six weeks into it we never played anything ever again (laughs) but we did do like a jazz show at the end of the year and it was like you know two weeks of actually having jazz band for that show and it was like he had teachers playing with us also because we weren't good enough because we hadn't been playing all year Uh, but for solos it was all the teachers and me and i had like a solo like every other song and so it's like well thinks i'm doing something right here but <laughs> again i think it was 99 percent confidence even if it was as a joke just being like i'm just gonna stand up and move my fingers and whatever comes out comes out but i always had fun doing the solos for that but it was it, again it was never like a ooh, i'm enjoying this solo the solo's so good it was more like i'm being silly and it doesn't sound bad
2: so I played trumpet in junior high and high school and college. I don't, I haven't played in years at this point, but like that was my main instrument. And I was always bitter because like saxophone just sounds cooler than trumpet. (laughs) Like if you get up there and you have a saxophone and you just like pick a note and just like wail on it, people are like, yeah, man, he's, he's digging in. That's, that's cool. That's, it's cool.
0: I mean, even the way you hold a saxophone. Ex-
2: no, is, exactly. Is cool. Yeah. Whereas like a trumpet, if you just like pick a note, people are like, Why doesn't he play more notes? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like No, it's not like innately cool sounding. There's like a social socially agreed upon that like sax stuff is cool. And then and even like you were saying, like, if you're just like a kid in high school and you're like, I'm gonna I'm going to do this with my fingers on a saxophone. Exactly, so it's going to go up exactly. and down. You can't do that on a trumpet. Like if you do That's this true. on I a trumpet, like sound might not even come out, you know, <laughs> like, like <laughs> it doesn't work the same way. And I was always bitter that like, man, this, I have to like do my homework to write, make a <laughs> trumpet solo. I'm like, if you're a sax, you can just like go into your altissimo register and like honk on some stuff. And people are like, yeah, this guy, he's going for it. Like,
0: <laughs> that, is, that is a good point. Cause yeah, there that was another thing too, where I'm like, do I just like, cause I never even, you know, if they were like, oh, play this scale. I'd have to like either turn to it or pray that I could remember the notes. Cause I didn't like have my scales and stuff memorized as I should have. And so I was like, oh, is there just like, do my fingers just know? But I think you're right that there's a lot that it's like, Especially if you're like jumping from this note to this note, you can just move your fingers around and <laughs> you're gonna have like, it's like that it's ooh like ooh ooh a, sound when
2: I was playing Tony Hawk, like I didn't own a PlayStation, <laughs> yeah. like my friend owned a PlayStation, so anytime we'd play Tony Hawk and it's like you go on the half pipe and it's just like I'm gonna mash buttons, and yeah. see what happens like
1: <laughs> I do think it's very funny that Joey has all this rage from being a trumpet player (laughs) and not playing a cool instrument and was like, I'm going to pick the coolest instrument. Bass. Bass.
2: My true home. (laughs) The
1: the instrument that everyone knows Uh is the most important person in the band.
2: And everyone knows has the best sounding solos. (laughs) So the last track, Flamenco Sketches, formerly known as All Blues, This is interesting. So we are, we, I I specified that I wanted to listen to the 1997 re-release of this album because that's the one that I bought from Walmart in high school. And that's the one that like, for me, that is this album. That edition had, so the track five is Flamenco Sketches, and then it had an additional track six, which was Flamenco Sketches alternate take. Um, So that's what we've been listening to. So I found out this alternate take was actually the first take of this song and was actually the, uh, like I said earlier, the only other complete take start to finish of any of the songs on this album besides the ones they used on track one through five. Uh, And I, yeah. So this song Flamenco Sketches is my favorite song on the album. I prefer the alternate take one to the one that they used on the album. Um, but I love this piece of music. I think it's one of the most beautiful pieces of music of anything. I, I, I just think it's great. Um, and this one is like a perfect example of the kind of like minimal approach to composing this album. Like he literally just gave people like... Here's five scales. You're going to play one as long as you want and then play the next one as long as you want and then play the next one. And then when you're done, someone else will go.
0: I I don't really have anything specific about this song. I mean, it's, it's nice. I kept hoping to have a moment where I was like, ah, this is why Joey wanted to have this version specifically listened to. And I'd, I probably never gave it enough time to get to that point. It was all, I, and so I was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> like, I, maybe maybe you can go into that more later, Joey. Of what about this legacy edition was special for you?
1: Yeah, I do think listening to the two tip, the two different takes, like side by side, the first one chronologically, so that is the alternate take, has a little bit more of a. Uh, I don't want to sound like hyperbolic, but like a sense of wonder, like you're kind of like stumbling around for the first time, unsure. Where the second one sounds a little bit more polished. Is that kind of one of the reasons?
2: Yeah, I I could see that. I'll tell you the real reason why I like the second, the alternate take better. Once you're done.
1: <laughs> okay. the The other thing is, like I said, I, I've listened to this album a ton in the past, but this is a track that I've never really sat with. As much other than like, you know, it, it plays out at the end of the album and things are winding down and I just kind of like zone out with it. But having these two tracks side by side made me like really like hyper vigilant about like, like Darvil said, like, I, I need to have I need to understand why why is this happening? I never realized how sparse the bass in this <laughs> song was. Yeah,
2: it's hardly there.
1: Yeah, but it's it's so effective because of that.
2: It is true that this song is probably the least catchy of any of them. The, the very intro, ding, ding, bum bum, that's pretty catchy. It's very like almost film score sounding. But then from then on, it, it's not as catchy. So I have extremely fond memories of the alternate take on this because, like I said, I would listen to this album many, many nights like going to sleep. I'd have my tiny crappy speaker next to my bed and it would be playing very quietly so I didn't wake anyone up. And I guess my sleep cycle or whatever, I would be mostly asleep by the end of track five. And so then track six would, six would start and it's this beautiful boom, boom, bum, boom. Very nice and peaceful. And then Miles Davis... If you notice on track six, he enters with the loudest, highest piercing (laughs) Harmon mute note and it would wake me up (laughs) like every time when he's just like it would just like a laser beam into my ear and it'd wake me up. And so like it's like a fond memory I have of this specific track (laughs) Um, is that like very, very loud Harmon mute. Note that he plays to start the song. Um, so I don't know which track I actually like better musically, but I just have <laughs> kind of like a, a fun that happened so many times. Um,
0: that's that's why it was so important for you to get it yeah, on. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. i
2: will <laughs> completely honest. That's the main reason because like there's like an affective element of this album when I was listening to it in high school that like. Oh, yeah, that's the note that would, like, keep me up an extra 10 or 15 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> no, awesome. but it is true. Like, the, the bass playing on this is very sparse, especially, like, we've heard this this guy can shred. You know, he, he can, especially if you listen to anything he played on, like, the bop stuff or the stuff he plays with Coltrane, he can play quick. And for him on this song to just bas- basically play, like, whole notes for the most part not just whole notes, but like root notes. And, you know, he's not being very adventurous, but it sounds great. I love, I love this song because it's Bill Evans sounding very Bill Evans on the piano. You know, it's, it's just like, if you wanted to give someone a song of like, what does Bill Evans sound like? This would be a good candidate. I think Um, the kind of like jazz via Debussy type, type playing. Um, Yeah. So I, I think it's a beautiful song. Once again, very, very shocked that this song was not supposed to be called Flamenco Sketches because some of the chord stuff sounds very flamenco-y in terms of moving from like dominant chords half step away, like very to me sounds flamenco-y, but oh well, I guess that's just my power of a suggestion or something. I, I did learn the the intro to this, the very iconic intro to this song. He actually borrowed from one of his previous songs on a different album. Hmm. Um, One of his albums from a couple years before. Um, and this is like a very kind of like the beginning of So What, like this is an iconic little intro. Like, so a lot of people have quoted it. Like I know there's a Chris Bodie uh, song. He has an arrangement of, I think it's the song Smile. Um where he kind of starts it off with this this little intro as like an homage kind of. So it's 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 very nice.
0: If you guys were at a show, their band was playing So What, is there any expectation that the solos will somewhat reflect what's done in So What? Or is they're just like solos or whatever, like we're here to experience whatever this solo is.
2: I would say there's no expectation. I think, I think if you were to quote bits, people would think it's fun. Right. Like as like a clever little, clever little thing to quote, like, but I don't think there, I don't think there'd be an expectation to. And in fact, I could also see some people, if you hewed too closely to some of these solos, some people would think it's cheesy or like lame.
0: Interesting. So that, that is a cool thing with the genre that's, you know, I feel like a lot of rock solos, it's like you expect the solo to be what you hear on the radio, right? Like you expect to hear that same solo, maybe a little changes, maybe a little, but if it was like completely different every time there'd be, especially like in the big songs, I feel like there'd yeah. be some element of like, Well, that's not my guitar solo. What's going on here?
2: Yeah. You got to play the Freebird solo if you're playing Freebird. Like-
0: <laughs> right.
1: That's interesting slash very famously played kind of free form solos and stuff and got some pushback from fans who wanted to hear, you know, like the, the solo from sweet child of mine to sound like yeah. the one on the record. And if you hear him talk about it, he's just like, yeah, that was a pretty good take. Like, I think it did some <laughs> cool stuff on that one. Like, you know, but, but it wasn't until that became such a ubiquitous thing that he actually like started recreating it i don't think <laughs> so
2: you know that actually brings up something interesting about this album miles davis didn't like tour on this album like this album pretty much only exists as this recording like he didn't play these songs live miles davis is was very much one of these guys who was like well why would i want to do that i already did that it's kind of weird because this album was a massive hit when it came out. It's not like it's one of these things where, oh, now, you know, 70 years later, it's a hit. Like it was hugely successful when it came out and they didn't really. So first of all, this group didn't ever get together again. Like they didn't, there was, they they disbanded after this recording and all went on to do other stuff. They just existed for this recording, but even Miles Davis's band, after this, they didn't do these songs. So it's kind of a weird, just since you mentioned like performing these songs live, like we don't even know what Miles Davis would have done on these songs live because he didn't do them live.
1: Hmm. But again, they're, they're, they are so ubiquitous now that yeah. all of these tracks are standards. Yeah. And it's not uncharacteristic to hear on any jazz jam or a similar type of event for someone to call one of these tunes.
0: It's cool, like understanding how this album came to be, like you said, just where scheduled some studio time, pay for some studio time, had the charge. And a lot of this is just, you know, just a handful of takes and you get these tracks. Um, if these had been years, you know, every single note written out and, you know, then finally went in and recorded it exactly how they had played it, no improvising at all in the studio. Do you feel like you would be able to, you would enjoy it as much? Like how much of an impact does that make on you knowing the difference between the improvised versus the pre-written?
2: I guess my uh, kind of cop-out answer is I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. like if I had, if I had to guess, like I don't actually don't know. Maybe, you know, James, I don't know if any jazz musicians ever write their solos beforehand. I don't, I mean, I'm sure a lot of the time they just do a bunch of takes and kind of say, oh, that was cool. I'm going to do that again, but change this, or, you know, like kind of workshop it in the studio. Some might, might write solos. I don't know. I think there is something, like I mentioned earlier, I feel like there are points in this album, especially on the sax solos, where it's like you hear them stumble onto an idea where like they're playing and they they play something they're like, oh, that was pretty cool. I'm going to do that again and tweak it. And like, I feel like you're kind of hearing them real time, discover some stuff. And I I suppose you could write that out. You know, there's no reason to think you couldn't compose that moment and then perform it regardless of if it's composed beforehand or not. I think those moments for me are really important in enjoying this album. It's like hearing, things develop real time and like the interplay between some of the instruments and stuff i think
1: that's what i'd have to think on i don't think it would have as much of an effect on me as i came to this album so late i didn't understand what was happening on this record when i first heard it and i still liked it just fine i do see kind of what joey's saying there there are some moments where you kind of hear like you know mistakes quote unquote from time to time where it's a note isn't perfect or whatever. And I I think that's a humanizing element of the album that I really enjoy. And if it was like super polished, like 2000 style compressed to heck, I don't know. I wouldn't enjoy that as much.
0: Have you seen any of that kind of improvisation freestyle in the like rock indie genre or pop genre, or is it just kind of something you feel like makes sense in jazz and rap that hasn't really existed in the rock world
2: for me the best example of it cue q q eye rolls among half of our listeners like (laughs) in terms of a a rock band that has really maybe the only one i can think of that's truly gotten close to like what a good deep jazz improv style would be would be grateful dead and in in fact like there's even an awesome 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 track uh they play their song Eyes of the World and Brantford Marsalis plays with them on it. And it's awesome. I mean, it's one of these things where it's like you really, it really makes you realize like, oh, they're, this is like advanced improv. It's not just noodling, which I mean, some of their stuff is noodling, but like when they're really cooking, like this is real high level uh improvisation that that would be maybe the closest I could think of as to like a group that had fully developed a, a non jazz group that had fully developed the art of being free and improv Im- improvising on their instruments to the same level that like a lot of jazz guys do.
1: Agreeing with Joey not being like, well, actually, no, like <laughs> agreeing with Joey, but I think a more um, mainstream and popular example would be Dave Matthews band.
2: So, yeah, that's mm. a great example.
1: Dave Matthews Band does that uh, pretty well live. They play a different set every single night. They do extended versions of their songs. They take different solos. It's weird for people to only know them for their like big radio hits because it's very frequently that you'll go see them play live and they will not play the songs that you're expecting them to play at all. Um, usually, like at least one or two will get thrown in there, but you're not going to hear every single one of the hits. But when I was like 13, 14, pretty, I was a pretty into Dave Matthews for that. Cause I was like, man, no one else is doing what they're doing. Like, this is like, they're the only band that does this. It's amazing. And <laughs> uh, yeah, there were hundreds of musicians, much more talented than some of the Dave Matthews musicians um, doing that for a very long time. So,
2: you know, uh, this just popped to mind. Another good example of like a fully developed, improvisation process would be, uh, certain bluegrass bands Mm. where there's like virtuosic instrument, you know, talent on their instrument, but then playing really uh, a responsibility to play like really interesting stuff for a very long time. You know, like they might jam on one song for 10 minutes. And so like, you know, someone like nowadays, like Billy strings is a good example, but even, you know any any member of del mccurry's band or ricky Skaggs's various band iterations as a bluegrass band like i think would be another good example of a non-jazz improvisation project that that approaches that same level
0: maybe we'll have to work some improv into whatever music we end up doing well i've one last thing to say mhm like it's interesting to me The idea of like pulling out my saxophone, which I sold, so I can't do that. (laughs) But but yeah, the idea of like pulling out a saxophone and just letting one of these songs play and just, you know, noodling around like on top of it is like, sounds fun to me. That's one element of this music that, again, I don't think I will go listen to jazz in the near future, but that is one thing that I feel like I would enjoy doing is pulling out the saxophone and playing along with some songs. The, my other takeaway is I want to throw cocktail parties and, yeah. and I'll play jazz at those. That's what I... Uh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. Well, that's Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. Uh, Darvel, do you want to tell us what we're doing next in, to finish out our theme of disruptors?
0: Yes. Yeah, so my album's going to be Shoots Too Narrow by The Shins. Okay. Have you, have you heard
1: this
2: record before, Joey? i think i've heard some of these songs but not i don't i'm not familiar with this album as an album
1: yeah this is the first run that we've done an entire cycle that i've owned all the records oh nice so so that's that's cool i'm the glue holding this group together (laughs) (laughs) yeah